Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have one of the original six, uh, freelance writer Tom Chick. Tom, welcome to the show. I'm sorry, quarter to three blogger Tom Chick. Blogger? Ew, gross. Although I guess that is what I do. Um, uh, before we start, I should offer you, Rob, uh, if I can get you a coffee, let me know. I'd be happy to do that. And, and that'll go, that goes for our, our third panelist, by the way, as well. <laughs> Uh, yes, we also welcome back our friend from Gamers with Jobs, Sean Sands. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So today we're finally getting around to discussing kind of a seminal game for Three Moves Ahead, probably the official RTS of, of Three Moves Ahead, or at least the official RTS of Three Moves Ahead uh, a few years back. Uh, we're going to be talking about Rise of Nations. And, Can I interrupt uh, real quick? When you say finally getting around to... You guys constantly talk about this, uh, but there, there's never been a dedicated Rise of Nations episode. No, this is this is the great irony is, is that I, I it's think, weird. Yeah, I think it was coming up uh, certainly in the early days when I when I was just listening to the show. I think you guys were were talking about this game eh, eh, probably for a few minutes every four or five episodes. Uh, so it was, yeah, it, it, it's strange. We've never actually discussed this game uh, in, in detail. What what's happened that we're discussing it now? Like, what? Why? Why are you finally getting around to it after all these years? What's the matter with you guys? Well, uh, the release of the Rise of Nations Extended Edition uh, on Steam oh, right, right. has sort of brought it. It's a, it's a new game once again. What is old is new. Uh, Skybox Labs, uh, who also did the uh, update. Uh, high-res version of Age of Mythology have gone back and updated big, huge games, Rise of Nations, and made it compatible with modern systems. Uh, if you if you bought the Age of Mythology extended edition, um, like me, you may have been a little bit disappointed. The, uh, the, the frame rate was never too great in multiplayer. It, it kind of seemed to have dodgy, dodgy netcode. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of little things about the game that I think sort of rankled. In terms of, like, just, you know, if we're talking about port quality, I feel like this is a bit more successful. And I don't know if that says something about the foundation that they're working from or not, but I, I certainly seem to have encountered fewer problems with the Rise of Nations extended edition than I yeah, Age of Mythology. Yeah, better. But better, but not super smooth. I mean, it's still janky in some weird places, and the netcode still has, I mean, still still seems to get hiccups, and there's, you know, uh, while it's, you know, light years away from Rise of Nations original matchmaking service, um, still, you know, if you try and send out a Steam uh, invite, it's supposed to work, and then just sometimes just doesn't, and I got a couple of weird crashes. So it's not ideal, but... And it's still, in the same time, I'm, I'm going to cut them some slack because, one, Rise of Nations is, I just give me a way to play it and we're in good shape. And, and two, it's certainly a step in the right direction. I, I actually am curious about why they even did this because I, mm -hmm. are there problems getting Rise of Nations to run on modern hardware? Because I've got it installed still on all the computers in my house, one of which is actually you know, Windows 7. Uh, it runs it fine. Uh, I guess a lot of this does add Steam functionality and mm -hmm. updated multiplayer, but I, my ins installations of the regular Rise of Nations run fine, and we all played a game yesterday, and I, by the time we got into the game, I completely forgot that I was playing something that had been remastered and re-released. <laughs> uh, for all intents and purposes, yeah, this is the same Rise of Nations install I've had going all, I've had on this computer all along. I think it's one of those practical upshots of just 
probably everybody, you know, a ton of people just don't have it anymore or just oh, have lost crazy. it. Oh, that's crazy. No, who would ever I, lose a copy of Rise of Nations? Well, that's insane. Um, <laughs> what if you never had a copy? I mean, No, that, Rob, that's even more insane. That, no, that is crazy. That would that's be ridiculous. Just... And it would certainly not be appropriate for the host of a strategy podcast to have not owned a copy of Rise of Nations at any point. Is that true? Uh, in last, Are you talking about yourself or Troy? Years. You're talking about Troy, right? No, no, I'm talking about myself. <laughs> so you you did not actually own Rise of Nations until you bought the extended edition. I was I was holding out. Wow. Uh, no, so <laughs> for what? <laughs> <laughs> That's Rob is weird to me. Every now and then I'll meet like a, a kid or something, or as someone who's like really young, and it blows my mind. And this is a sign partly of, of my age. It blows my mind that there are people who were born after 9-11. I was like, how yes. could you have not been around the world when that happened? It's the same with Rise of Nations. How could you <laughs> like real-time strategy games and have never played Rise of Nations? That's insane. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, it falls into it falls into that I had just gone off for college. Like, that is the year I started, I started college, basically. Uh, finished my freshman year. And so it just, it just sort of came at a time when um, I had a lot of other things going on, and I just never kind of went back and picked it mm -hmm. up. In in part because the the um, the network at, at my tiny little university in northern Wisconsin was just just absolutely atrocious. Um, like for many people, college is a wonderful time of discovery of the joys of land gaming and broadband. Such was not my experience. Um, <laughs> Were you aware of Rise of Nations like when it came out? Like, were, were people talking about this cool history oh, strategy boy. game? And if you were into Age of oh, Empires, you oh, totally I'm going to sound so terrible. Oh, God. Okay, let's just get it all out there. All right. Mm -hmm. It just didn't look sexy. Like, oh. if I'm being honest, at the time, like, this was I, was... I was deep into Total War. Um, and I think the Dawn, Dawn of War was only a few years away. Like it, it was at a time when I was when I was just kind of looking for the new hotness. I think I think Warcraft uh, Warcraft Three came out around Three this time as was, well. Yeah. And so if you look at Rise of Nations, and and it pains me to have admitted I, I was I was once so superficial. But if if you compare Rise of Nations to kind of what else was going on at the time, uh, just from like a a visual standpoint, it looked. A little bit like, hey, it's a clone of uh, Age of Empires, and I I know I'm going to a hot place in hell for saying that, but at the time I was, you know, I'm like my relationship with games at that point was basically, you know, pick up a copy of PC Gamer on the newsstand from time to time. I'd see it in ads and I'd look at it and be like, yeah, looks like looks like a crappy, you know, Age of Empires knockoff. I'm going to ignore it. So yeah, that's kind of what happened. I'm not going to stand for that, Rob. I, I will not tolerate that kind of talk on, <laughs> on this or any podcast. Because, come on, you would have, like, screenshots of, of F-16 fighter jets and B-52 bombers and, you know, nuking the Eiffel Tower. Um, you know, huge armies, like, poised, uh, facing off across a river and, and navies. Uh, and these cities, these vast cities that you would add buildings to and... To say it doesn't look sexy, it still looks super sexy to me. Um, that's crazy talk, Rob. What kind of person were you? What kind of superficial, horrible person were you? I just hope you've grown out of that. Uh, I I like to, I like to think I have, and with <laughs> my with my commitment to Rise of Nations Extended Edition, uh, I think I've shown I've changed. I can grow. Um, mm -hmm. I'm worthy of your love, really. Well. Um, I mean, maybe. Not, let's not get carried away. 
I mean, uh, yeah, let's slow down. Okay, but yeah, so okay, so why don't you, Tom, Tom and Sean, you you were sort of more into strategy games than I was at that time. Um, you know, put it put it in context a little bit. What what's happening in this era, and did did this game really stand out from the crowd at, well, at the time? Well, what what really made this game for me was the I mean the the there were there are a lot of little subtle changes that don't stand out as much now, um, but you know when I, I remember like when I first sat down with it and realized that resource gathering was fundamentally different that it was this this kind of counter instead of oh my guy goes and chops down a tree and then he brings it back and you know this same thing that Starcraft still does now, um, it was sort of it was sort of an early mission statement for me on. A new idea because I, I I understand where you're coming from. I had got, grown a little tired of Age of Empires, and you know I think Age of Empires two had come out at that point. I don't know if Age of Mythology was out, but I, I, I was getting a little burned out. This was kind of late in the the, the big RTS boom, um, and and this was this felt like a game that was really bringing a different idea. I mean, I rem- I still think it is somehow fundamentally a real time version of civilization uh it, it it's not in every way but the the fact that it has borders that push in and out that you know really impact where you can place buildings and how you're managing uh, attrition and it has um you know a really kind of complex uh technology system the the way that you have you know you know not just these ages, but all these buildings and all these, you know, components that really have a strategic value. And it uses, I mean, has it, it uses the civilization model of so many different um, uh, civilizations, frankly, with with different and meaningful abilities. It just it, it brought all a bunch of little things together to me that felt very, very familiar and immediately accessible, but not 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 just dragged down by what had become the stock standard RTS of the time. And I, I would I would actually frame that question not even in the past tense, but in the present tense. I still see Rise yeah. of Nations as hugely relevant to real-time strategy games. Um, I, I had a girlfriend who used to, uh, on any given day, uh, she would list her top five, uh, the, the top five Beatles songs. And they would, of course, change from day to day because when you make a top five list, when you make a best of, you're, you're usually picking your favorite. It often says more about you than the list. So her, her uh, list would change from day to day, and it would be more a statement of how her day was going. Uh, I could do the same thing with real-time strategy games, list my top five real-time strategy games. And I don't think, even though what I'm looking for in a strategy game might vary, even though there could be things on there that range from, like, Sacrifice to Kohan to Shogun 2, uh, sometimes StarCraft might be even be on there. I don't think there's ever been a time when Rise of Nations wouldn't have been in the top three of those. Um, and and that, that holds true today with where the genre has been, where, if anywhere, it's going. Uh, the, the context for Rise of Nations is that it is still a fantastic real time strategy game that does things that no other game does as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the fact that there's an extended edition, that, that, I mean, it's hugely relevant still. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. even think it was a reissue. It, it's been there all along, and it's not going anywhere. So the thing that I think captures 
my attention the most. When I started playing this, I immediately started uh, feeling so, like there was sort of a, a, a weird like kinship between this and, and Kohan. And that might in part be because I think their, their art styles are at least a little bit reminiscent uh, of one another. But, but I think more importantly, um, I, I, Kohan resonated very strongly with me when I was introduced to it uh, a year or two ago. And this this hits me on that same level, and I think part of it is because they are both real-time strategy games with an emphasis on strategy. They are real-time strategy games for people who maybe play, you know, more... Yeah, more thoughtfully paced, like four X's and, and and games like that. It, it's it's kind of 180 degrees away from sort of the um, sort of uh, the, the, sort of the fast paced uh, peon management, uh, you know, RTS that. Can, mm-hmm. can I throw a term Blizzard at you? The, yeah, yeah. So it, it, I think what you're kind of getting at, I actually don't want to read too much into what you're saying, but is it kind of like the difference between when people talk about macro and micro? in a real-time strategy game, where macro is the economic stuff, the larger picture, and micro is the little tactical fiddliness. You know, a game like Kohan, that tactical fiddliness is pretty much taken out of the equation. And there's some of that, I think, in the the approach that Rise of Nations takes. Is it kind of that sort of thing, Rob? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of, of uh, summing it up. Uh, and, and, yeah, in the Kohan comparison, absolutely. Like, Kohan, though, is super subversive about a bunch of things, and I think Rise of Nations takes a more kind of conventional approach in that it's something that we're all familiar with. There's still a lot of the usual trappings of real-time strategy. And you can, and I, I, I am convinced there is a layer of micro in um, Rise of Nations that can be just as intricate as StarCraft, but you can play it and play it well without necessarily having to learn that. You can't play StarCraft unless you're capable of popping off those little Protoss orb things you know you have to know all that little tactical stuff that's just as important in starcraft as the economic stuff but rise of nations lets you like kohan just approach it from that higher up strategic level that as you said rob i think a lot of us 4x turn-based gamers are more comfortable with i i think there's but i i might extend that idea because i think there's actually a micro element in the macro and that's really convoluted but i i think the when when you unpack all these layers and layers of economy you're really you are in the sense kind of micromanaging the economy more than an army and more than that kind of conflict to the point i mean i i really it's it had been a while since i played last night uh you know, when when I was playing, when we were playing around with this, what I found myself doing was just trying. I, my mind couldn't keep up with the <laughs> need for constant management of technology and 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 buying and selling resources and uh, you know upgrading buildings and managing multiple cities at a time in exactly the same way that it can't manage when I am like, okay, I got ten zealots, I'm just going right. to throw them. Good luck, guys. Go get them, boys. It was exactly the same feeling of oh my god this is this is this would be such a skill and uh, and a source of development to understand the interlocking ways that these these technologies and and bits work together so that that feels like the micro element to me and, and exactly, and I don't mean to, like there. You can totally micromanage your economy, which is mm-hmm. technically the macro level. I'm just talking about like the way RTSs use those terms. Yeah, but I the economy it. is such an intricate and to me beautiful machine in Rise of mm-hmm. Nations. Uh, can we talk about the economy? Like what makes it unique? Oh yeah, yeah go let's for it. Do it. So 
you know, a lot of games will have multiple resources, and there will be some variance among the resources, how you get them, how you use them. Uh, for me, the resources in Rise of Nations, and this is totally that micromanagement that you're talking about, Sean, the resources are all so different, and they have to be used and acquired and managed in such different ways, and some of them even come into the game at, at completely different points uh, mm -hmm. and become important in different ways at different points. Um, and, and I can totally see how that's overwhelming at first. Rise of Nations is nothing if not a difficult game <laughs> to, to wrap your head around. But I think once you do that, there's, there's it's like an intricate jewel. Um, so, so one of the things I want to bring up, and, and Rob kept saying this last night as we were playing, uh, we had uh, we first did a comp stomp, and then Sean and I teamed up against Rob and, and Troy. And Rob, you kept saying over Skype, "Why can't I buy knowledge? You know, I really need to buy knowledge." <laughs> and obviously, what had happened is you didn't um, like you were wanting to age up or buy technologies or whatever, but you were experiencing a bottleneck with knowledge because you can only get knowledge based on the number of universities you have, how much wealth you've spent hiring professors and how much wood you've spent upgrading the efficacy of the universities. You know, knowledge is a very specific bottleneck. And the reason, Rob, you are not allowed to buy knowledge, you can never buy it, and if you made it something that's buyable, you would break the game, is because knowledge becomes a hugely important late-game resource for nuclear weapons. By the time the game enters this nuclear age and people are tossing nukes out, you can have all the money in the world and you can buy and sell on the market, but you are only going to build as many nukes as you have knowledge infrastructure. And there's this kind of cool idea, like that's a cool gameplay mechanic, but it also gets this idea out at this idea that, that you need a, like a brain trust to cultivate your nuclear program. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have this backward Soviet-era uh, infrastructure and then create these, these marvel... Like, you will lose the nuclear arms race unless you have super smart people. Um, so, you know, knowledge is... You can't... It, it doesn't even tie into the money. Uh, it, it doesn't even tie into the other resources like money does. Uh, so that's why you can't buy it. And I love that... Pretty much every single resource is like that, has some unique application. Yeah. One, of the, one of the things that makes me think of, actually, that I think really makes, to me, Rise of Nations stand out, is there's this idea that you just kind of put in there, which is sort of converting... Uh, it, uh, there's a resource conversion element that not a lot of other RTS games have. And what I mean by that is, if you look at something like StarCraft, you are taking resources and you co are converting them directly, in most cases, into power. Now, you may be converting yep. them into buildings, but the, the end the end result is very much a, a power development. The, the, the interplay between between the resources and Rise of Nations feels much more, much more intricate and, and evolving in that the way that you kind of kind of buy and sell them on the market and you can change the market value across the board. And then, like you say, you have to take, you know, your 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 wood and, and, and your resources and convert them into this other type of resource that has this different application is is really a subtle kind of a, a, but but critical uh, advancement of this idea of why you're gathering things and what you're hoping to accomplish with that. Uh, I love to, for instance, um, we didn't really get to this point, and, and this is like a level, and I don't even think I'm there, where when you're really good at Rise of Nations, um, there, the certain 
facets of the economy emerge in a new way. For instance, uh, all military units, with I think one exception, like this archer unit, which becomes a historical dead end, there's a point where you can't upgrade him, mm -hmm. but all military units, I believe, need uh, food. And food you get from farms. And farms will necessarily, and just because I guess you could do it otherwise, but there's no reason you wouldn't, a farm will tend to be clustered right around your town center because it's one of the first things you do is you use your guy to build a farm. So if you want to raid somebody's resources, a bunch of them, like, like, like iron and, and forests, for instance, those are workers that are scattered out around either a mountain or a forest, and they're relatively easy to pick off. And you can also destroy the little gathering structures if you need to. Uh, if you want to interrupt somebody's wealth, you can kill their, their caravans, which have to go back and forth mm -hmm. between cities. But if you want to try to cut off someone's food, you have to get in there up against a town center, which can defend itself. Um, and that, that is the crucial element for, you know, that's the common element for building any military. So you can raid someone, and you can easily shut down some of their other resources, but it takes much more commitment to shut down somebody's food production with just casual raiding. Uh, and I think that's an important balancing thing, is you can't completely, with raiding, shut someone down from building an army because you can't get in that close and shut down their food. Uh, I love little things like that. And also the fact, you know, the, those caravans, no, almost nobody does this because it's a level of gameplay. I, 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 again, I'm certainly not there. But raiding caravans because they have to go between cities, that can be hugely effective. You know, you make it where people can't make money by shutting down their caravans. And then they have to rely on either selling resources or there's a, you can make money from taxation as well, which you research mm -hmm. in temples. Um, but yeah, I love how each... Uh, resource has its own kind of personality and gameplay mm -hmm. yeah. i also i also like how this is sort of plays into uh the the control of space and territory uh, because just uh, just running any of these strategies where you're going to raid how you're going to pick them off where you're going to attack all of this has to be done with in reference to uh, your current national borders, because the moment your troops leave your national borders and enter hostile territory, they begin taking attrition damage. Uh, so you, you, you have to worry about uh, logistics, uh, which is sort of my, 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 my pet theme on Three Moves Ahead. Uh, but, <laughs> but I love it every time a game, it just as that one extra layer beyond, eh, just, just take your guys... Click on the you know click on the place you want to attack. Done. They'll go there and they'll go there and wreck it. And and there's an element of that where that I, it's not just the logistics and it's not just the borders part, but the the borders your territory is a resource into itself in a way, and it's something that's very elastic and it's something you can fall behind on. And and I mean I've definitely played games where I fell behind or 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 impeded in the you know computer in some way so that I actually reach my borders into their you know their tower or their their castle or whatever they have and that you know that that just changes the landscape I or love worse this idea. you know push back where they're uh, where they're mining or where they're, exactly. where they're harvesting a forest yeah exactly. and all of a sudden you can't they can't mine nearly as much and, and that's 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 another great layer of this is that that elasticity of if you can't not pay attention to it you can't say okay i'm just going to be very aggressive and i'm all military because that 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 is as important in many ways well, well, it's also a victory condition you know you can yep, win the game system. Yeah. yeah yeah well and i also like that it 
it, it changes it changes the way turtling strategies work in this game a, a little mm. bit. At least in the way I'm I find myself employing them. Like I find it kind of cool that the um the the, the castle or the fortress uh, whatever you want to call it, um, it actually acts as a, it has a local effect uh, on the borders uh, near mm-hmm. wherever you plant it. So sort of like a medieval castle, you know, it's it's a good way to sort to sort of use it as a staging area and, and a way to sort of push forward into someone else's territory uh, when when you don't have a population center nearby. And so I find myself as as I look at these maps and I'm sort of constructing my empire. Um, I, I find myself thinking a lot about how I want the borders to look. Um, you know, where am I? Where where should my armies be positioned uh, to to most effectively sort of police my frontier, but then also be in a position to to launch little harassment raids. Uh, and and so what what it turns into is not just sort of building a ton of fortifications mm-hmm. uh, to to just protect like you know one crucial like pile of buildings. This game doesn't really work that way. What 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 tends to what what I t- what I find myself doing a, a little bit more is is thinking about how to use those those fortifications to construct sort of a a sensible network of, of defensible locations uh, and positions where I can fight because really my best defense is actually going to be uh, my national territory the attrition that's afflicted uh, the the fort's a nice bonus having it shooting there at other units that's helpful having those little guard towers is going to help turn the tide of a battle but the thing that is probably Probably going to save my ass if I come under attack. I can't handle is going to be um, if I can hold on. To, if I can keep that border out there, uh, the attrition that's going to slowly go to work on the enemy army. And just today, I was, you know, I got hit by a timing attack um, from an AI that I was a little overmatched by, and it had hit the uh, it hit the gunpowder age, the, the enlightenment age, uh, just just a little faster than I was, and I was still sort of uh, running around with Roman legionaries. So it was it was it was not a it was kind of a mismatch. It was not going to go in my favor, but the moment they sort of burst into my territory, I saw they only had two supply wagons covering their entire army. Uh, so I just sort of suicide attacked my troops on the supply wagons. And um, my army was just getting ripped apart because they were at least uh, a tech level, possibly two tech levels behind. But the moment the supply wagons went down, the AI just had to peace out because, you know, just standing there in my territory, far away from their own territory, no supply in sight, uh, they were just going to basically wither and die. Uh, and I wasn't going to have to do much of anything, and that bought me enough time to uh, tech up and be ready for them the next time. But it was this—it was this cool thing of like, um, there there aren't many RTSs where I can where I can think of and say, ah, uh, yes, because I cut them off, cut off their supply, right, uh, right. their entire mm-hmm. thrust was was blunted. Uh, but well, that they happens do it in that this elegantly. Game. I mean, and it's so intuitive and elegant the way it works too. It's not some convoluted thing about you've got to like lay a supply chain down or anything. It, it just happens and it works out and you can visually see it with the borders. You mentioned those supply wagons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and what this gets to for, for me, for me, Robin, uh, one of the cardinal sins in a real-time strategy game, and I've been playing a lot of Planetary Annihilation lately, and oh, I'm so disappointed in that silly thing. Um, it, it commits this cardinal sin, and that is making the place where you're fighting uninteresting. No. You know, it's it's one thing to give me a really cool unit, and it's like a robot, and it shoots lasers, and it's got crab legs, and okay, yeah, that's fine. But unless I care about the place that this thing is fighting, 
it's not going to sustain my interest. I can only look at so many of those things blow up before I'm like, okay, I've seen that, whatever, next. But I can see a map unfold like Rob is talking about, the, the battle he had. I can watch the dynamics of how a map evolves and unfolds and informs the narrative, for lack of a better word, for any given game. That is endlessly entertaining. Uh, and Rise of Nations does that on so many levels. You know, those borders are one thing. Of course, the natural choke points are another thing. I presume we're going to talk about navies. But one of my mm-hmm. favorite things is those little special resources. And I think that's another moderately power gamer aspect of Rise of Nations. But when you select a market, they all light up on the mini-map, so you can see where they all are. And each one will give you some special little bonus. And if you can hold that territory, uh, you know, you can send a merchant there and he unpacks and he gives you that bonus and it shows up on the screen and you can mouse over it to see just what you're getting. But some of those bonuses can make a huge difference in certain situations. Um, yeah, for instance, they're not when, trivial. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and, and you want, I mean, even if they are trivial as far as what bo- specific bonus they give you, I think they will all give you specific uh, additional resources. I mean, they'll all give you a resource as well as some little gift in addition. And for instance, in our game last night, uh, where it turned out, it, it became evident very early on it was going to be a naval game, I really, really, really wanted citrus. But I didn't have it. And if there had been citrus, I would have... Because I think citrus, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, makes your ships heal automatically and quicker. Uh, and I knew we were going to have a naval battle. So suddenly I was all about, you know, where's citrus? We've got to control citrus if I can find it. <laughs> but, uh, but I didn't think there was any there. Uh, so those little resources, they give the map personality. And it's that same thing like you were talking about with the borders, Sean. You know, if you can push someone's mine back, the mountain that they're mining, if you can push the border back and therefore eat into their iron production, that's hugely important. And on a slightly smaller scale, but still important, if you can take away those little resources or just gobble them up with the castles Rob was talking about, um, you know, the map suddenly has so much more personality. There really is. I mean, by by the late stages of the game, and we weren't playing on small maps. There was There was no kind of... There was no sort of space that was just irrelevant. There was just, oh, here's the gap between, right? right? I mean, there were, right. even if even if it wasn't, you know, you know, some really complicated place, it had, you know, a borderline, or it had one of those special resources, or it had some element. You always and 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 it's interesting because the the way that cities are laid out and the way that buildings are laid out really ends up impacting your ability to fight as well, either in defense or attack. I mean, the, you really, you can't just kind of go stab at the heart unless you're just ridiculously overpowered. You have to, you have to push and play on the edges of the conflict in a really, uh, you know, in, in a methodical way, because the, the, the maps, the way, the way cities are laid out, the way it's all engaged just forces you to, you know, unless you're raiding or something like that. But when you're really pushing in, you have to push in in a thoughtful and structured way. And, and I, I love that you're mentioning the way the way cities are laid up because something I, I really appreciate about this game, uh, and I'm not sure there are many games that operate this way anymore, is it it doesn't have any preset locations where cities absolutely have to go and the rest mm-hmm. of the map is sort of dead ground as far as where you can settle. Um, I really like that 
sort of scouting around for effective homes for your cities uh, that are within range of your previous settlement. Uh, I, I love that that's that's a part of the game that that it has the it has that 4x thing right where you get the scout sort of wandering around. You find a sort of mountain range and then you see like you know some forest nearby and a nice little flat area you know between them and then there's another mountain range and you're like hey. All right. <laughs> right. This is this is pretty cool. This is gonna be this is gonna be fantastic, uh, and and so I like that. You know, even if you you know as as you play on these maps, it, it's not a given what your opponent where you're going to find your opponent or what their city's going to look like. That's really up to them. That's really whatever they want to prioritize. Uh, just how you utilize the map becomes reflective uh, of your strategy, but also, of course, informs your strategy as well, right? Because if you're, you know, having trouble finding, uh, you know, good mining, that's obviously going to affect what, what the composition of your army uh, is going to be. But I, but I just I just love the fact that sort of you can, cities can pop up anywhere. Your empire can sort of take whatever shape uh, you want, and it's not something you, you just do on autopilot. You, just, you don't just, like, plant a town center down and then saturate it with workers. This is something you're sort of constantly thinking about as you're expanding and trying to figure out you know where you know what your next move what your next position should be yeah there's even a great city builder aspect to it like it and it's that's mm-hmm. again where rob i'm gonna have to dock you 20 points for not saying this game is sexy <laughs> but when you when you're dropping those little buildings it puts roads between them and it does these and they upgrade over the ages aesthetically i just find the the city building aspect of rise of nations so satisfying just watching those cities become little clusters of skyscrapers from little huts to you know there's supermarkets and stuff in there and the 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 camel caravans become these these trucks you know trundling down the freeway uh i just love the aesthetic of, of the city building stuff you know, playing yesterday uh, during our comp stomp, in particular, uh, in, in which we nearly got stomped by a by a rogue Egyptian, um, but it, I, I loved how much this really did feel like Civilization the RTS. Uh, right, right down to the fact that I'm just sort of like I'm feeling pretty good. I'm I'm doing pretty well, I think. You know, I'm uh, I'm leaving Troy to die, uh, of course, but you know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm playing the important role of of the strategic reserve uh, for our, for our side, and. Um, and so, by the way, nobody dies like Troy. Like, Troy gets just so... I'm pretty sure that was him clicking. You could he, hear him clicking wildly. He was getting his actions per minute into the stratosphere. It was he amazing. He plays that game so hard. It's a whole-body experience. <laughs> it it is. Like, I think he burned a lot of calories, yeah. Like, there are people coming off, like, squash like squash courts who just haven't done, haven't done shit next to what Troy put, de- put... Like, Troy left it all out on the map. Um, <laughs> but... The the thing is, um, so I I was feeling pretty good about my my little Greek empire. I had you know pretty nice you know array of pikemen and uh, cavalry and everything, and uh, I just hadn't sort of been keeping up on what the Egyptians were up to uh, until I went after um, a, a Roman city and the Egyptians sort of came to the rescue. And they're rolling over me with these little like World War One tanks and. Um, Little like you know, little Tommies from World War One, uh, that sort of thing. And it's just this—it's—it's it's a sudden realization. Like, oh God, um, I am. I, this game has left me completely behind, uh, and, but I'm not completely out of it either. Uh, because you know, I, I may not have the latest tech or something, but I'm finding my, I'm finding on my own territory. Uh, I have the ability to churn out a lot of these troops, uh, whereas you know the the other guy may not. It just feels so much like. 
so much of the action of sort of a more conquest-oriented game of Civ uh, compressed down to to sort of one multiplayer session. Well, and they they've sold this, and I remember being super skeptical of it when it when it came out. Uh, Big Huge sold this as this idea that it was a, a, a history-spanning RTS that you could play in your lunch hour. And I remember thinking, no, that's really cute, guys, but there's no way. You know, it's absolutely mm-hmm. not going to happen. And some of these games are epic. They feel longer than they are. I mean, our game last night, maybe did it go an hour? I, I doubt even that. Close. But you can easily, it's, it, is, it, is, it is literally a lunch hour game. You can get in under an hour this huge epic game, even if, it, you know, and it goes to the modern age. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, the pacing in this game is, is superlative. I, I think that's one of the things you just said is really, to me, the center of why I love this game, which is every, not every game, but for the most part, when you play this, the game and the experience feels bigger than maybe it is. You know, right. there, there, there's, there, there's something I project onto what is happening that I, that I don't always project, don't often project onto a game like this that makes me walk away and kind of feel like, oh my God, that was so... That was much. I, I, how could I play another one after that? I have to go soak that in, you know. And 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 I'm sure if you play long enough and you you start to see it, and this is where I didn't get, and where I I would never really want to get to the, with with this, where I'm where I'm starting to overly game it where i'm really you know i, I remember I, I was starting to get into thinking about oh i gotta i gotta remember this build order to get to the first stage <laughs> or things like you know and, and that's where it just takes what i love about this game and starts to crush it and i i don't i don't want to live in that world I, that that's funny to me sean because i i there's so much richness here i have a, a buddy of mine who uh, i used to play this with a lot uh you know, I've got a sort of a LAN set up here, and he would sit on one computer, and I would sit on the other. And he loved playing, um, I think it's the Bantu. And he had this Bantu rush that he always, he was convinced it, it, it broke the game, and it would always work. And I forget the specifics of it, but the idea is that he would send his scout to find your city, and then using some unique power of the Bantu, I forget what it is, I think maybe they can build a military before anyone else, but he would build a second city as a forward base and then use it to just start streaming Bantu warriors at your starting city. And he loved this tactic. He would do it without fail every single game. So every time I played with him, because I knew this is exactly what he was going to do, I knew exactly what to expect. And it became this kind of puzzle. Like, okay, what's the best way to shut down my friend Steiner's stupid Bantu rush? I know it's coming. <laughs> and the thing is, it was easy to do because I knew what he was doing. It and he was he would constantly say things like, "Oh, it didn't work that time because I took too long to set up my second city," or "Oh, it didn't work that time because my scout didn't find you in time." Like he always had some excuse for why it didn't work. But but there's enough balance there that I loved seeing him try to abuse the game and then also trying to figure out how to counter this one specific strategy. And I wouldn't want to do that every time, mm-hmm. but. I think it gave me a different kind of appreciation. That might suck the joy out of other games for me, but I loved my friend trying to constantly do that same stupid Bantu thing, and all I had to do is build one little tower um, to defend my... and, and not 
build farms out too far. And his little guys would come in and eventually die. And I'd research attrition quickly and then get my barracks up. And he would break up a silly rush against my defenses. Um, yeah, I, I think that's I see that sounds really, you know, attractive to me because that really is the problem solving core of what makes a strategy game a great strategy huh? game. The yeah. the thing I wouldn't want to get to and maybe it's not possible with this game, but, you know, or, or I'm sure it's possible, but maybe it's not as effective, is that just sort of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven that is really laid out ahead of time. So I, I, I would enjoy the too, game. Like the StarCraft approach. I would enjoy the game from your perspective. I would not enjoy the game from your friend's perspective because that is, <laughs> that's like the thing I want to avoid. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's... I like I like that it feels it, it feels like there's there's plenty of room enough for, for for both here and whereas oftentimes Starcraft I I kind of feel like you know if you're going to accomplish anything in that game at some point you're going to need to sit down and and learn mm-hmm. to build um you're you're just gonna have to do it and you have to like you know sort of get a sense for you know where the timings are going to be uh you know when you know when does that second barracks need to hit the ground uh you really need to be on that um. Here, I, I I kind of feel like there's there's plenty of room for sort of improvisation and sort of playing it, uh, you know, as sort of a a, a real time forex where where you're just sort of flying along, uh, but. You know, it, it was interesting because when I, when I when I first started playing the game, I definitely had this this worry as I as I took in all the various ways you can make progress in this game because not only do you have the 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 sort of technology tiers via the library, which is sort of your central research hub. This is how you sort mm-hmm. of progress your civilization. Uh, but then you have all these other technologies popping up in other buildings ar- around your empire. So like you can upgrade uh, your, your universities with like the printing press, and then they generate more knowledge per scholar at that university. Uh, you can upgrade uh, your farms. They'll turn out more food. Uh, the rate on your, on your food production w- will go up. And I started to worry a little bit because Tom, you you, you were t- you were telling us sort of the pro tips uh, and giving us hotkeys and, and such like that, and you were t- you were telling us that you know you just got to be you know habitually going hitting tab to see what's out there that you can upgrade. And I was starting to worry a little bit that like, oh well, this this just kind of seems like um, you know you, you'll just you'll just kind of be going through this every few minutes and just sort of mass upgrading everything or, or, you know, and then you wait for the next thing and it'll feel like it it works on autopilot a little bit. It feel, it it felt at first like the game started trying to keep me uh, progressing everything. It's sort of a, uh, sort of a trying to keep everything a a little bit in lockstep. Uh, But, but then as I, as I played a little bit more, I kind of, I kind of liked sort of I started to perceive the other ways you can play this game, right? Like I, I start I started seeing like, oh, you know, I could just if I'm willing just to run an insane risk and just not do jack with the military. Um and just go straight for, you know, run, run civics, uh, you know, focus on civics and commerce. Um I can boom really fast, really hard. And uh yeah, I'll be behind in tech. But I'm gonna I'm gonna plant so many more cities down, and you know I won't care if I'm behind in tech because if I can just survive that first ten minutes, um, I'm going to have a ton of settlements down, and then I'm just gonna be able to buy my way back into this game. It's gonna be great, mm. uh, and and I and I and I kind of like that. You know, at, at first it sort of seems like ah yeah this this is sort of like you know an, an earlier civ game where you, where you do kind of want to be a um, a, a jack of all trades civilization, and then the more time you spend with it, the more you start to see like. 
the other lines of play that are available, uh, the the other you know the the other ways you can approach you know the same problem, uh, just by sort of the way the, the way you tweak you know your, your progression through the tech tree and what what support techs you focus on. And and that so can we talk specifically about the the second game we played when we were two v two last night because. Yeah. That that was a game where I think, um, and, and I don't mean to sound like like bragging or anything, but I, I kind of felt like um, I, I played a lot of Rise of Nations, and I'm not good at it, but Lord knows I I know it well. Um, so the, I think the only reason that I that me and Sean and Sean was doing great over on his side of the map. Well, uh, well, you were you totally were keeping like you were keeping Troy on the ropes. Like I, I had my had job, to, I had my job, and I stuck to it. And you, you pushed hard, and you were getting guys across there. But the moment I saw that that, that map, and it, I think it was called like Atlantic Combat or something like that, but the, the map is basically all the players are on their own island. So we, we all know once we realize that, okay, the naval stuff is going to be hugely important. Um, so that was one of the games, Rob, where I think the main reason that is I, I was able to do as well as I, I did is because once I realized that, I snapped into this very specific build order. And it's like you were saying when you talk about how you might boom. You know, when you see you're on a naval map in Rise of Nations, there are very specific measures you can take to make sure that you get naval supremacy and that you therefore can can keep the other players contained until you can nuke them or whatever. Um, so so what, what happened when I saw that is... Uh, all ships need wood, and I even realized that. I, I sort of realized that as we were going. I was like, oh, yeah, right, all ships need wood. So I immediately made sure to get a bunch of lumber mills and to put a, a bunch of, like, I think sawmills or whatever they're called, or lumber yards, and then sawmills, whatever the lumber boosting mm-hmm. building is in each city to get a lot of lumber out. Um, I'm, I looked for citrus. It wasn't there. That heals your ships faster. I made a point once I started building a navy. Um, first of all, you also build the navy inside your dock. Make a big navy so you don't have just a bunch of ships sitting out that the other guy might pick off, and he might not even see that you've got ships. Just put the build rallying point inside a dock. So all this navy that you're creating, it's not there floating on the water, and nobody's going to suspect it until you've got overwhelming superiority. So I'm building all the navy there inside of the docks. You get multiple docks going, of course. Um, Grab whales. Because there's fish you can use for food. There's whales that I think give you gold. But if you control one whale special resource, your ships travel 50% faster. So you can move around the map faster. And make a beeline for the porcelain tower, which is a wonder of the world that builds your ships 50% faster. So you can crank them out even more quickly. Uh, So once this happened, it became a matter of having a navy to go out there and make sure nobody else was on the water. And then once you hit the gunpowder age, you create – there's a new kind of ship called the bomb catch, K-E-T-C-H. And what that does, it's a cannon ship that's hugely effective against buildings. So you have made sure to protect these bomb catches, and you use them to destroy every single dock the other guy tries to build. And, and from there, it's over because now you can freely cross the water with impunity. You can keep them from crossing the water. You can use the bomb catches to shell any buildings they have within range of the shore. Um, but it's simply a matter of sitting down and thinking, okay, lumber, porcelain tower, whales, citrus, bomb catches. And, 
and Rob, I mean, one of the things you were saying last night, I think actually it holds out. And this is this is why another thing that I, I I love here is that would probably be the ideal strategy for that kind of map. Absolutely, but arguably, I think you could make the case that you could do exactly which is what Rob was jokingly saying several times, which is, I'm not even going to do a Navy. I'm yep. going to make sure my buildings are not in range, and I'm going to go straight as hard as I can toward air superiority. Yep. And just, I'm going to man my borders. If they try and cross and land, I'm going to take them out. But other than that, I'm not going to do... I, I don't have to fight your game. And the, the flexibility of this game to allow you to evaluate the situation in its real capacity and, and make a decision like, I am i don't have enough lumber. I don't have the things I need to, or I know he's just going to build a hell of a lot of ships. I'm going to let him bury himself in ships so that I can just, I, I just need to focus on getting to the fifth tech and then I've won this game. Or yeah, or just go for a wonder victory. All that or, wood yeah. that I'm spending on ships and, and metal, by the way, those ships cost metal too. Go for a wonder victory because those are resources I'm having to spend to control the ocean. Fine, let me have the stupid ocean. <laughs> you know, <laughs> absolutely. Right, right. Um, and, you know, any good real time strategy game will have that kind of interplay. Uh, but there's just so much richness, I find, in, in the way Rise of Nations does it. Uh, I, I think the interplay's there, but I, I think what Rob pointed out earlier is it's not predetermined interplay. It's not sort of it, it, it is provide. I mean, I, I, I know there's there's I mean there's obviously elements of it that are predetermined, but I think the systems are much more flexible to allow you to be more creative in the situation than to say, okay, I have choices of choice one, choice two, choice three, choice four, and they're all predetermined, and I'm now playing you know rock paper scissors. Just just to that point, I was I, I was just thinking about you know because because in my, in my job now I talk to a, a lot of like pro StarCraft players. And one of the things that I was talking to uh, this guy QXC, um, Kevin Riley, about uh, sort of the, the ways that Terran have been struggling this year. And he pointed out that, you know, one of the things that he noticed is that, um, you know, be, because StarCraft is, is is partly a game of just like pure mechanic, like uh, physical memorization and skill and execution. Uh, one reason the Terrans were, were starting to have trouble is because the moment a race starts to take a dip, um, and you you don't have uh, players having a lot of success with certain strategies, and there's sort of uncertainty about what the correct response to these lines of these lines of play is. The moment there's uncertainty there, uh, it all kind of goes to hell because because then you have to be thinking trying to figure out your strategy on the fly as you're playing it, and in StarCraft that's that's a huge disadvantage. Um, and and I kind of feel like in this game at least it, it never is quite and it, it doesn't seem like it would get quite as deterministic based on what you're saying because this game is simply so much bigger. Like yes, you're you're exactly right. Like uh, probably if I had to do over again, well if I had to do over again, I would have I would have built a much bigger navy right at the start, and I wouldn't have given uh, Tom that easy rush win uh, in the first naval battle, but. You know, then I probably would have just done ex exactly one of those two things you just you were just talking about, right? I either would have completely canned the idea of taking back to the sea, would have just dug in on my island, and you know either tried to go for a wonder victory and force you to you know wait in there and come get me, or uh, I you know I would have I would have gone all in on, on tech and you know saturation of cities, and see if I could sort of race ahead on on the air track. Um, 
and sort of and get you know get a win that way but either of those options and then probably other options i didn't I, you know that i just don't see yet uh but either option either of those options would have sent the game off in completely different directions um that because of because of the various ways you can tech up and, and all the different things you can prioritize uh, about your about your civilization, uh, it, it, it feel it feels like this is a game that that is always much more about reacting to what's there just because the variables are are there, there's so many variables. Yeah, all those systems yeah. and 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 part of what that gets towards too is the different ways to win. Uh, I love uh, that. Uh, so a lot of times when you, you play, you will win a wonder victory by virtue of capturing somebody's city. Or, you know, a wonder victory doesn't mean, hey, I just sat back and built wonders. You know, the wonders are kind of a, a scoring mechanism. Like if you have a certain number of wonders, wonder points over and above the other team, you've won. Um, so that that's that can be a conquest thing. That can be a, a booming thing is you just build a bunch of wonders and the other guy's doing something else else with his resources uh there's the territory victory the uh the the capital capture victory um this is a game that definitely doesn't want you to get in one of those really stupid stalemates where you're just Mm -hmm. throwing stuff at each other and somebody's just going to get bored and give up and go home um uh, like so that was actually how our game ended is uh me and sean last night were just like taking out y'all's wonders so we could start the wonder timer uh, and none of us had set out to build a wonder victory. It's just what became at that point, this speaks to the improvisational nature of the game, it's what became at that point the most practical way to start a victory timer. Yeah, I, I, I do like that you mentioned this game also has the Armageddon timer. I like that this game mm-hmm. also has a draw state built in that you can just spoil no, the game. No, not a draw. Everybody loses. Yeah, it's not a draw, I don't think. I think it's you all lose. <laughs> Which is which is amazing. I mean, there, having that kind of in the back pocket as you know, almost the ultimate screw you at the end. Like because the the idea behind it is, what at least in ours it was what if you if you fired twelve or thirteen or fourteen, I don't know how many the total was, um, nuclear think, weapons. And it's not one person. It's kind of across the entire yep. map. Yep. Then. If you you know go over that, then the game ends and nobody wins. And your point last night was great, which is you know if if you have that technology in your back pocket and you know this is a losing situation, like this is this is the final solution. This is literally it. I can just fire a bunch of nukes and make sure they don't win either. Right. Yeah. It's uh, taking your ball and going home. Where, it where is the, the ball in this case is the entire world. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's petty and small, but if I had the choice, I would definitely do it. I don't, it's not petty and small. It's the rules. It's how the game was made. I would do yeah, it as well. Yeah. I know, exactly. <laughs> so the other thing I want to talk a little bit about is just. Um, you know what happens when the armies clash because there because there is some interesting mm-hmm. micro i think particularly centered around the role of the general uh the the, the general is sort of uh you know a little bit of a hero unit but almost like more of a caster uh really that you can just you can just sort of have hanging out with your army to sort of put auras down auras down for it and it, it's just it's it's kind of interesting to me that like in some ways i felt like this game did not make it easy for me to micro my troops uh, the way the way I can in in other RTSs, but in other senses, uh, I, I liked 
you know, I, I liked that there were options like being able to create decoys and, uh, you know, sort of fill their screen, fill the enemy's screen with uh, units that aren't really there. They're phantoms. Uh, just so they waste their fire on it. Or, or that I can sort of march my general into position. And if I want to take a fight uh, and sort of force them to come to me, I can, I can click on my general and have them entrench. And my troops will take a really defensive formation and dig in. Uh, and, and then, you know, is if... if as long as the enemy just sort of feeds into their line, uh, they'll, they'll be getting really solid bonuses. Uh, that becomes really powerful in the in the gunpowder era uh, when you can just sort of take a strong position and then just sort of mow people down from a distance. Um, I, I, I kind of, you know, so on the one hand, I was kind of frustrated that I, I felt like I was sort of wrestling with the game to let it micro, let, let, like to micro my units the way I'm used to being able to sort of like, hey, grab this one type of unit, task them on this tar- type of target, grab this other unit, you know, have all of those guys attacking this type of target. Uh, I, I felt like the game sort of fought me on that but, front, but on the other hand, I, I, I really liked the role played by the general. Yeah, and, and I think it really makes the game distinct and interesting and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, authentic for that reason. I mean, if, if you're actually thinking in the element of how these battles would play out, you know, it's not like generals are walking around like, I have this army. Johnson, you over there. Carl go forward no wait come back you're hurt you know it's it it it, it really you know you you can kind of break the army into groups perhaps to kind of you know you know you know work your flank and and, uh you know get get a good i mean concave is still always powerful there um but when troy and i uh, in in our comp stomp uh took one of the early towns uh, i came in and sort of relieved his flank and i i I came around and sort of wheeled uh almost uh perpendicular to him to stave off the counterattack that was sort of swinging around the side and that felt like i mean while in one way it absolutely doesn't allow me a lot of flexibility to say oh i want to get my 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 artillery right here and right here that becomes very difficult it's this entirely different feeling of of managing a large system um in a really it's still in a really strategic way so i actually really like that you're not microing individual units or individual sections of units that you're really you have to think you know it's not that your army becomes a blob when you hit 1a you know it doesn't just become this ball that goes across the map it it, the formations are really important there's actually if i remember correctly there are a number of different formations you can use with your army it's a advanced feature i think um and using that in an rts is is not something i get to do often I actually think uh, there, there's a lot more uh, traditional micro in here than you than, than I think the average person appreciates. Uh, and and it, it, again, it's kind of like some of the other quote unquote power user features. But there's a lot of little interplay. Rob, you mentioned the generals, um, and, and of course, Sean, those those formations are important. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, like there, there's a whole sub game with spies and scouts, for instance. Oh yeah, um, that's mm-hmm. a spy, and this doesn't cost you money. The spy just has to charge up uh, her resource, which I think is called craft. Uh, it is craft, yeah. The, all the the spies, the scouts, and the generals have craft, but the spy can steal an enemy unit, and that's uh, if you've got a bunch of spies and absolutely bring a few into battle because they're great. That's that makes a big difference in an, what would otherwise be an evenly matched battle. Uh, mm-hmm. But what counters the spy is the scout, 
A scout can see a spy and expose her so that any unit can shoot her. The scout, furthermore, can sabotage buildings, which does a lot of damage to them, and it makes it a lot easier to take out the building than, than having an army just stand back and, and chip away at its hit points. Um, so there's those things, and you can also improve those at your fortress, like how much craft they get and how quickly it builds up. Um, one of the things they added in Thrones and Patriots is this idea of a capital building that you build, and at certain thresholds when you hit... Uh, ages, I think it's like three, five, and seven, I could be wrong about that, but when you hit certain ages, you pick one of two forms of government. And the form of government determines what kind of general you have. Mm -hmm. And Rob, I don't think the generals were, were, were buffs previously. Like the generals could do those special decoy and trench and quick march abilities, but one of the advanced generals, I think it's the communist one, uh, if you're in a war footing in that last age when you pick your last government, he gives every unit in his radius some crazy like plus five armor buff. Um, and that's hugely important. I mean, that's ridiculous, actually. Uh, and that's a big micro thing, you know, is making sure your army is in range of your general's little radius there. Uh, and, and what helps, what I think makes this kind of a power user feature, it's not like StarCraft where there are big bright buttons and crazy visual effects when you do these things. It's much more modest than that. Mm -hmm. But everything, and I mean everything in this game, has some kind of hotkey or some quick way to jump to it. Um, and, and I think if you learn those hotkeys, this traditional micro stuff becomes super easy. You know, you put, you just hit, um, you just uh, hit the, the apostrophe, for instance, to select a spy, and then you right-click on an enemy unit. And that's all you have to do, and she takes a moment, but that enemy unit is going to be yours if the other guy doesn't have a scout to, to reveal the spy. Um, the general, for instance, slash. You hit slash, you jump to your general. Uh, and there, there's just another key to make a decoy army. Um, like, this is definitely micro stuff, but Rise of Nations, which I think has one of the best interfaces of any game of any genre, uh, makes it as easy as they can once you learn the, the interface. And here's another example. So few people know about this, and I'm glad. When I play Rise of Nations, I don't want people to know this. I love telling them this when I'm not playing it with them, but once I'm playing against them, I'm sorry if I ever told them this. Alt-right-click is something that every single real-time strategy game should have. Uh, does either of you know what alt-right-click does? Nope. Oh, good. Okay. I'm about to blow your minds. This I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so you know a lot of times you've got artillery, and you want it to attack a building. You don't want it to go with your army. You don't want to rush it forward with your cavalry or whatever. So you want it to sit there and just attack the building, and then you want your army to maybe hang back with it um, and protect it. So normally, maybe you put your artillery, and Sean, I noticed afterwards, you used more control groups than anyone else. So Sean, I know you're sort of leaning towards this kind of thing of messing mm -hmm. around with different control groups. And that's a lot of times what you do. You put your artillery on one control group, the rest of your army on another control group. Right, exactly. Rise of Nations, you don't have to do that. Ugh. Just hit, hit shift comma, that selects all your military units, and then alt right click on the target that you want your artillery to attack. When you do that, 
All the units that you have selected will perform, they'll create a defensive perimeter around the artillery what? while this the artillery the gets in range to attack. Best thing I've ever heard. Yep. So, and you, by the way, you can also shift that. Like you can shift alt right click on all the towers along a border, and the artillery oh. will take out the towers one at a time. If any army <laughs> comes near the artillery, the defenders will sally forth and destroy it and then hang back. You can just alt right click on a city. And, you know, it'll it'll just attack the city, and the army will hang back and defend the artillery. And you can see them putting this really cool little perimeter, a lot of times it's like a block or a diamond, around the artillery. Uh, and I can think of one other game that has done this. And and the fact that all games don't do this is, is astonishing to me. Because it's something that at Big Huge Games, they know we want to do that. They know we don't want our artillery to run forward and be naked and undefended. So mm-hmm. they gave us a control to, to do that with one click. Um, so, yeah, so next time you, you have an army, just select the whole thing, then alt-right-click on something and watch how awesome the little... Uh, I've been frantically trying to micro my infantry in front of my uh, siege weapons. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, wow. Guys, this game's pretty good. And there's <laughs> like, stuff, too, like, like for when, real. when you select all your units, if you just, I think it's shift-click on a picture of a cavalry, you'll then select all those cavalry. So if you want your cavalry to sally forth and attack, like, infantry or supply wagons, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, just when you shift-comma to, to look at your whole army and then shift-click on one of the horse pictures, and suddenly you've got... Uh, all the cavalry under your control, just right-click on a supply wagon. Or shift-right-click on all the supply wagons, and they'll take turns taking them out. Um, you know, good RTSs will do this, but no RTS is as thorough. It, again, well, I can think of right. one exception. Uh, no RTS other than Rise of Nations is as thorough uh, as Rise of Nations in terms of giving you the option to do different kinds of things with different hotkeys uh, as extensively as, as it allows. Wow. Okay. That's this is some pro tips. Uh, I, I feel like I should have had my uh, paper and pen out. Uh, so you know, we're we're coming to the end of the show here, and there's I feel like we've we've haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't even talked about faction design. Uh, so at some point, maybe we do need to revisit this uh, when we've got Troy, because uh, I know he has strong feelings about the way they represent factions here, uh, the different civilizations. But I wanted to ask you guys before we before we called it a night. Um, I, I you know again, return to Kohan. Um, I, I feel like there was this there was this brief moment where uh, the the definition of what was an RTS was really completely up in the air. Uh, the 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 that it, we were sort of an evolutionary fork in the road, and a lot of people were exploring very different avenues. Uh, you know, in this time, you had Warcraft three really, where, where Blizzard is kind of trying to figure out how they can reinvent the the Blizzard style RTS. Mm-hmm. Um, in a few years, Relic would come along with Dawn of War and and really try to bring a lot of war game values uh, into 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 the RTS. And then you got games like Kohan and uh, Rise of Nations, really sort of uh, trying to figure out how to harm harmonize uh you know real-time play with sort of more traditional strategy game concepts and you know you know this this game obviously holds up it 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 hasn't really aged all that much it's still a unique and original design but i feel like part of that is definitely because i kind of feel like i'm playing um you know I'm, i'm i'm hanging out with a unicorn right like i'm playing a game that i i don't think anyone's going to emulate i don't think i don't think people are looking to it that that much for design inspiration based on what i see in the rts space and i'm kind of curious uh, what what do you think happened uh, to to this moment? Where where do you think where do you think this? Why do you think this this moment ended? So I'll just go back to what 
I said earlier, I think it came in at the end of the RTS boom. Um, and I think as a result, it came in at the moment, the most, the, the game you could have taken the most inspiration from came at what feels like the moment that nobody was interested in taking inspiration on that front anymore. So that by the time it would even be, you know, really something to revisit. And, and I mean, that's, that's a broad sweeping generalization. And, 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 and I know, you know, there, there, there are opportunities to miss that, but I just feel like it kind of came to the game too late. It almost, it, you know, you look at it and you look at its uh, sequel quotes of Rise of Legends and it, it almost didn't even inspire itself. Uh, I mean, Rise of Legends wasn't a bad game, um, but it, 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 never, it didn't even feel like it really lived up to the pedigree it, it, it came from. So I, I think it was just bad timing. I, I would take huge issue with that, Sean, because I think Rise okay. of Legends is every bit as good as Rise of Nations and got and got really unfair treatment. As a matter of fact, I think the unfair treatment Rise of Legends received um, is partly what happened. Um, the, the model that Big Huge Games was doing when they tried to apply it to a, f a fantastical environment, which is kind of what, what happened with Rise of Legends, and they tried to expand on it... Um, you know, this narrative about Rise of Legends is, oh, I don't understand the factions. You know, oh, who are these people with the giant Aztec cats? And, oh, this one's steampunk. And, oh, these guys have genies. What? Um, the fact that it, it, like, that was also uh, a criticism applied at Kohan, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that it wasn't these intuitively, these intuitive memes or standard fantasy tropes, uh, people dinged it for that. And I personally found a lot of value in that. Um, so I and when I was mentioning before that I can only think of one other RTS that has a better interface than Rise of Nations. That other RTS is Rise of Legends. Really? Because yeah, it's the same guy. I think his name is Scott Lewis. He worked at uh, Big Huge. Oh, good. I, I don't, Scott, I've had him on the show. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't. I don't. Th I'm sure he had help. He was just one of. I think he was like their main interface guy. And I'm pretty sure he did Rise of Nations and Rise of Legends. Rise of Legends had a lot more to juggle, and it did it just as well. And I would say even uh, better, considering all the different elements and the asymmetry amongst the factions. Because I actually feel, as much as I love Rise of Nations, one criticism I have of it is the end game is the unique factions, which have some minor, some cool twists. Some of which are huge. Some of which mm -hmm. are minor. All of that kind of evolves in this end game soup. It dissolves in this end game soup. When you're playing the end of a game of Rise of Nations, for the most part, it doesn't matter what faction you are. Um, Rise of Legends completely uh, turned that on its head. When you're playing, uh, you know, the choice of faction in Rise of Legends always matters extremely. Um, and it's this weird fantasy stuff that people weren't acquainted with. But I think as far as the tuning, the pacing, the interface, the balance, the, the interplay amongst the different systems, I adore Rise of Legends. And I think it's every bit as good as Rise of Nations. Well, now I want to go back and play Rise of Legends again. Because <laughs> like I, 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 when I first played it, I just... I, I don't know if I fell in with everybody else where I'm like, ah, I don't know what this stuff is or, or what. It just, for whatever reason, it didn't click with me at the time. But I, well, I, if I'm, if I, now I feel like I missed something. I, I mean, I, I think part, you know, it's, it, I, I think it kind of killed the, that model, that Rise of Nations model, because I don't think mm -hmm. it did very well. Um, and, and the reason I think it didn't do well is a lot of it was some really disappointing, lazy reviewing. Like, I read a lot of reviews of, of Rise of Legends where I got the sense 
Oh, this guy didn't play this game very long. Like, I hate reading that. Mm -hmm. I hate seeing a review where you can tell the reviewer didn't, his, he didn't, he wasn't able to wrap his head around it. And I saw a lot of that with Rise of Legends. More importantly, though, perhaps, I think there were some hardware issues at the time. It was a pretty uh, hardware-intensive game. Now you can run it on pretty much any computer. It looks awesome. But back then, it was super hardware-intensive. There was some terrible... Uh, clunkery going on with their game spy, uh, game spy matchmaking when it came mm -hmm. out. That was a big uh, problem. But I think it was also hit with this idea that, oh, the different sides don't make any sense. Which, I, you know, that, that drives me crazy. That, that video gamers are so freaking lazy that they will complain about something like Kohan or Rise of Legends that involves something new, something fresh, a, a different take on mythology. And it's, a, it's, it's unique to how lazy gamers are when they approach games with this craving for familiarity and mindless comfort food gameplay. You know, that's what a lot of gamers want. And I see the biggest movie this year, by the way, is Guardians of the Galaxy. And that movie isn't big because people love that comic book. That movie is big because people <laughs> who go to movies, they love new things. They love sitting there and going, what? What is this? There's, there's this green lady and these planets are having a war and there's a, a tree that carries a raccoon around. This is awesome. Let's watch it. It's funny. It's well-made. When a well-made game comes out with that kind of craziness, gamers are like, no, nah, I just want elves. No, nah, just give me a regular orc, you know. Anyway, so I'm getting up on a soapbox, but it, the, the point is, I think one of the things that happened, to address your question, Rob, is that uh, Rise of Nations was followed up by a game, a sequel, that didn't do well for a number of reasons. And instead, this historical RTS mantle was inherited by Age of Empires 3. And mm -hmm. Age of Empires 3 had a bit of a shaky start. There were expansions for it. And where Age of Empires 3 finally came into its own and became the absolutely fantastic game that it still is today is when big, huge games did their, uh, their expansion, which added China, India, and Japan. And I forget the name of it now. Um, but so I think that's what happened, is that big, huge games ended up you know, their, their, their putative sequel, Rise of Legends, didn't do well, so they ended up hitching their wagon to what Age of Empires became. Um. But then the entire thing sort of dies off. Um, of course, that, could, that, that, that takes place perhaps against a broader uh, change in the real-time right. strategy space. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. Where exactly. Now, we, now everyone plays MOBAs, and the RTS is kind of a, a backwater um, as far as, you know, developers making it a priority. Uh, are, right. Are, um, but that is a topic for another day, and possibly if we do another plan a planetary annihilation show, uh, that's something we'll, we'll want to revisit a little bit. Uh, but I, you know, I wanted to take. A, <laughs> I want actually your your example of Guardians of the Galaxy is kind of interesting. We all saw that movie, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who didn't? Okay. All of America. Everyone listening. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. I think that movie was total comfort food. I think the reason it is able to sort of feel new, though, and and this is the this is this is a weird thing. I feel that I did not like that movie very much. I I sort of felt like in if that movie were sort of taken by itself, I, I don't think it, I don't think it described its characters' motivations particularly uh, particularly well. Like I was never sure why I should really care about this world or why I should care about these characters, except except that. 
there had been this year-long marketing campaign in advance of the movie, sort of sketching out who each of these people were. Well, here's who, there's the here's the green lady. She's a morally comp- compromised assassin chick, but she's really good. Uh, here here's that fun Peter Quill. You know him from uh, from Parks and Rec. Uh, look at Andy. Look at Andy shoot those guys with a blaster. Isn't that cool? But I, I feel like part of what happened with, with with Guardians of the Galaxy is. It's a case of it's it's an example of like how how you can use marketing to sort of build a familiarity and affinity for something that is new before anyone actually sees it or or understands the the entire whole. Whereas I feel like in in games in particular, I I often feel like we're, we're very good at marketing what is exactly familiar. We, we even I think a lot of us can get in the habit of, of sort of describing new games by sort of mashing up other games that they remind us of. Uh, but but what we're what we're less good at doing is sort of preparing that groundwork for explaining. Okay, well you know here's here here's why you should be excited for this game because because here here's the new stuff that it's doing. It feels like that that message has has a hard time getting traction. I think I, I turn to the example like Brutal Legend, right, where where they kind of threw up their hands and decided they would they would market that game as not at all what it was. Do you want to play an action game starring Jack Black where he shreds guitar and all these dudes? And it turns out to, it turns out to be a bit of a strategy game. Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like that's that's a, sort of an important distinction, you know, and, and maybe that's sort of why we end up having this this draw towards comfort food again and again. Uh, because when it comes time to convince people that that a game is worth their time, it, it feels like all advertising, all marketing is try, is focused around explaining how this game is the same but better uh, than, than the stuff you you've encountered from, encountered before. Oh, it's just it's just like that last game, but better. Uh, and it, it seems like we have a real trouble finding ways to convince people. We have a real problem finding ways of describing new ideas to people uh, who haven't seen them before. I would guarantee you, though, that there there must have been articles in PC Gamer leading up to the release of Rise of the Legends. I mean, this was this was Microsoft, right? Uh, telling you about the different sides and the different units, and I'm sure they tried to do their work with the marketing. Uh, it's just that I think gamers are culturally and creatively as an audience much more stunted than, than moviegoers. Uh, there, there's less room for trying different things in games, for unfamiliarity. I mean, the, the real, the comfort food analogy, I think, in movies would be, you know, another Iron Man or, oh, what's Captain America doing? Um, you know, if they just continued to use the same characters from the Avengers. Uh, and I think gamers are just resistant to stuff that they, that they don't already have some convenient pigeonhole to, to plug something into. Um, I mean, I think they're fed that too. I mean, I I, I think that is well, there, sure. yeah. there. There's a distinct difference between a number, of, an infinite number of distinct differences between the movie industry and the video game industry. Despite how often we like to compare them, but I I, I think it is it's become sort of a self fulfilling prophecy as well. I mean, Destiny to me feels like a really really good example. Here is this. You know the the biggest game, one of the biggest game companies in the world, aligned with one of the biggest publishers in the world, with this brand new IP. Look, we make new IPs. 
you made Halo. You really, you did. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, you did. I'm sorry. I don't want to, you know, it's, it's really good, Halo. You did a good job at it. You're, you're pretty good at it. Um, but even when we have something that is unique and distinct and, and, and different, um, out in, in AAA game design, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of setting aside indie here. I don't know if that applies or not as much. Um, it isn't all that new and and you know the, 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 there there's the same problem in the movie industry as well but it really manifests differently and it, it sets different expectations and and, the, and i think that's exactly the point i'm trying to make though is that you know, you know D- destiny is going to do well i think activision is saying if they've made their 500 million back on the first day or whatever probably uh, where, whereas something like brutal legend or um you know, Brutal Legends is a brilliant game. Uh, Rise of Legends, I think, brilliant game. Those should have done better. They they were certainly marketed, maybe not well, um, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's well, a huge topic. I didn't mean to sort of yeah. open this this can of worms, but I I do feel Rise of Legends is a brilliant game, and it was partly the undoing, the fact that gamers didn't want that of the beautiful thing that had been created in, in Rise of Nations. You know, it's it's funny, and I, I feel, uh, and we are getting a little far field from the topic here, but I do kind of wonder how much of it is also the way we treat games, partly because I think game, game, I feel like we treat games like they're this big consumer decision, because for a lot of time it was a medium predominantly for uh, young people who, who didn't have a, a lot of spare cash lying around. And, you know, you go back to why, why hadn't I played this game? Well, back in 2003, you know, I was, I was pretty broke. I was a freshman in college. You know what I mean? Like, it was like I was <laughs> right back in. I get maybe one or two new games a year, and I barely have any time to play them. Uh, like, whatever I do... I've got to be really sure that I'm excited for it, and it's going to give me exactly what I want. And I, I kind of, I kind of feel like that is something that afflicts the entire conversation around games. We end up getting these sort of like, um, in some ways, almost consumer reports or bang for your buck uh, valuations, valuations of games. Uh, whereas you know, movies are are seen as a comparatively uh, very small uh, investment. It's a very light decision. You know, it's a question of what do you do with your Friday night. And if you, actually, if you look at what it costs to go out to see a movie and get some concessions while you're on a date versus buy a new video game, eh, these days the, the the difference in price isn't that big. And yet we we approach it completely differently, right? Like, you know, well. You know, is this is this really worth sixty dollars? Whereas, you know, if if you're gonna go and have a good night watching Guardians of the Galaxy, and maybe spend forty bucks. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's it's a total popcorn movie. Enjoy, yeah, it's a great thing to do on a Friday night. <laughs> and yet, you didn't like it. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I think it's really funny that I'm I'm sitting here trying to defend these uh these kind of unique uh, design approaches that weren't very well commercially received. Probably the game that I have spent the most time playing this year, 2014, is Diablo. Freaking mm-hmm. Diablo 3, which came out <laughs> last year. They, they put out a patch. I'm like, oh, 100 more hours of Diablo. Playing on the <laughs> PS4. I mean, man, I can talk a good game, but here I am clicking away, leveling up another stupid Diablo character. So, 
Yeah, I definitely am not the guy to be standing on this. That, that sounds like box. a good idea. I know what I'm doing after the show now. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, you said you were going to check out Rise of Legends. <laughs> no. Well, well, I mean, maybe. So it Probably like just Diablo. It doesn't look like there's any uh, plans for a Rise of Legends extended edition that I can find. I would be stunned. I would be... You I don't be... need one. It works fine. Well, I <laughs> don't it own it here. because <laughs> I heard it sucked from people like Sean who were like... Well, it's... we didn't, no, I didn't know. Hear, I didn't hear it from, I didn't hear Don't it from you him. put That's... me in that corner uh, sorry but uh okay so it's oh god no it's a disc and it's like 14 dollars on amazon i don't know man i don't know if it's worth it you do need a I'll cd-rom to... drive you need uh, a computer with a cd-rom drive and who's got one of those anymore right yeah, exactly <laughs> all right so we'll leave it uh there for our discussion for tonight we'll probably revisit this uh at some point just because uh I, I think faction design is an interesting case uh, an interesting case study here. Uh, but for now, that has been our long-awaited discussion of Rise of Nations. Uh, Tom, Sean, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, until next week, this has been Three Moves Ahead. As always, my thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes. Uh, we'll be back with, I think we are going to be doing a show with the uh, gang working on Clockwork Empires. But until then, uh, good night. <laughs>